0: Uh, Today we continue to explore biblical truth for the pain and suffering we go through to help ground us further. And this morning specifically we look at purposes and reasons from the Bible behind the suffering and pain that we go through. But before we go right into today's lesson, did we have any questions or comments from last week that maybe you had? If not, that's okay. We're going to push through this material. There is a lot before us here this morning. So if you have questions, go ahead, raise your hand, and I will get to you eventually. But there is a lot here. So just know that we'll be pushing through a lot of this material as there's trying to condense a a ton of information into a short amount. And we'll see how well I do or do not do this morning on that point. Um, Again, want to note one more time, we're using Tim Keller's book on suffering and pain. And beginning next week, as we saw here, uh, we'll begin looking at suffering, facing suffering practically, how to survive and thrive in the midst of it. So if you've been with me for these past few weeks and you're wondering, uh, where does this get like practical? Because we've been looking at frameworks, we've been looking at it practic you know, like broadly. Uh, where does this get like super practical for, for the sufferings I'm facing like today? That'll be for the last three weeks of this course. And I, I promise you, we're getting there. So if that's been you and you've been wondering, know that we are getting there. So if you're facing intense suffering, uh, we're getting to ways in which to help in those moments. And again, I've suggested to you we're we're building a framework and working our way inside more and more to the core. All right, then looking at biblical purposes for suffering. As we've covered, suffering in the Christian framework is not meaningless. It's not purposeless. Uh, We realize that God has purposed to defeat evil so exhaustively on the cross that all the damages, all the pains that we've experienced from evil will be undone completely. It will be undone completely by what Christ has done on the cross. And we who are his will be saved in the end. And God will accomplish our salvation, not in spite of suffering, but through suffering itself. For it will be through the suffering of God that we looked at last week that all the suffering of humankind, all the pains that we've experienced will be undone and overcome. And so while we wonder sometimes, you know, wasn't it possible for God to do this with so much less evil and misery? Uh, while well, we don't know. The cross assures us that God loves us and that the purpose behind his grand narrative, whatever it might be, is motivated by a deep love for us, an absolute commitment to our joy and glory. So suffering is truly at the heart of the Christian faith. And it is not only the way that Christ became like us and redeemed us, but it is also one of the primary ways that we also become like Jesus and experience his redemption. And so this means that in our suffering, despite all of its painfulness, despite the reality we don't like it at all, it is also filled with purpose. It's filled with deep purpose and usefulness. As we've already, again, covered in previous classes, we live in a society that tells you the exact opposite. The idea of suffering being useful is is totally foreign to us, and it's utterly resisted. And instead, what is emphasized are the harmful effects of suffering and pain. It's pointless. It's bad. And so it's to be avoided at all costs. Eliminate it. Minimize it. And again, while we as Christians acknowledge that it's true that suffering and pain can be incredibly harmful, and it is bad, as Christians with the biblical perspective, we have to recognize at the same time that God is working to turn evil on its head. And he's doing this for his glory and our good. He's transforming the pains and sufferings we go through, no matter how big, no matter how small, to this end. And so he doesn't want us here this morning to squander the pains or, or the sufferings we go through, but he wants us to turn the evils we experience into good as he did with Joseph and more significantly with the evil done to his very own son on the cross. So as we think through what it is that God is trying to do through all our pains and suffering we go through, we want to start this morning with the biggest overarching theme in scripture and uh, in, in what it gives us for our sufferings. And that is the truth that suffering is ultimately about the glory of God and our future glory with Him. This is arguably one of the hardest things for us to swallow as as believers, I think, because because we just we struggle with this notion that our suffering is about God's glory. Like, really? That seems self-centered. But as we turn the pages of scriptures, we find over and over and over again that this idea of suffering and God's glory, it, it pervades it all, all over the New Testament. And this is where we want to begin as we look at the purpose behind suffering. Consider Paul's own comments on this matter. He says in Romans eight sixteen and 17, "...the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ." If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering, glory together. As Jesus Christ suffered and died, so the pattern for the Christian is the same. We suffer with Christ, resembling his likeness, so that we too may one day be glorified with Jesus as he was glorified not in this life really but after his death that is the pattern and we follow in his footsteps and walk the path of Christ to glory second corinthians 4:16 and 17 therefore we do not give up even though our outer person is being destroyed our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Again, we see the connection between our suffering today and the eternal weight of glory in the future. And that eternal weight of glory is so great and and so marvelous that Paul can call all the pains and sufferings that we will ever go through light and, and momentary in comparison to eternity. In comparison to all that eternal weight of glory, the pains he is experiencing presently, is light. And he wants us to think in the same way. Now this coming from Paul is um, means something when he says this. Because when we consider all the pains that Paul went through, uh, it was serious. And yet he calls it light. He went through being nearly stoned to death. He was shipwrecked. He was mocked, scorned, beaten, whipped on multiple occasions. He was imprisoned in terrible conditions and far more and yet he has like the audacity to say that was all light in comparison to eternity but not only does paul connect suffering and our future glory but peter also does the same for us he connects suffering with our future glory and it's here in 1 peter 4:12 and 13 he says dear friends Don't be surprised when suffering happens, is basically what he says. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice. Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. And so just as Paul encourages them to see suffering and pain as a way of following Christ, so Peter does here too. It prepares us to see Jesus when his glory is revealed. And when it's revealed that we've walked a similar life to Christ, it enhances our own glory and our own joy when we see our Savior, whom we've been following, whom we've been modeling all of our life. Again, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's again here in this passage we see suffering, Is connected with the glory of God and really our own future glory with Christ as we are in Christ. As Christ is made much of, we too one day will share in that glory as he is our our identity, as he's everything to us. And so though we haven't looked in depth at these these passages and there are many more on top of this, I, I just want us to get a glimpse of what the scripture is trying to portray to us. There's a connection between the sufferings of Christ and God's glory, and the same is to be true of us as his followers. If we handle our sufferings rightly, and that is all the pains we experience in life, all the sufferings that we count suffering, no matter how small, no matter how big, again, it is about God's glory and our own eventual glory when Jesus is revealed. So one of the main, again, purposes in suffering is the glory of God and our own future glory with Christ. Now, I think many of us take that for granted here. Maybe we've learned that growing up all of our lives. But this is a difficult truth for many to swallow, especially new converts to the faith. Like, this is not an easy point to grasp. It's hard to fathom at times That suffering is for God's glory and our good. We struggle with this. And a person that we know well, C.S. Lewis, described this exact struggle early on in his own life and faith. He describes it well in his Reflections of the Psalms. It's here that Lewis confesses that for many years after becoming a Christian, he was confused. He was embarrassed by God's call on us to glorify God and to praise him in all of life. Lewis points out that among humans, such a desire for praise was seen as completely despicable. For in his words, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. But... As Lewis began to think about how praise and glorifying worked in other ways, he noticed that when we say that a work of art is admirable, we don't mean that it deserves praise in the way that a good student deserves a high mark. Rather, we mean that the artwork demands admiration because it is the only adequate or appropriate response to it. And that if we do not give it that praise, in his words, we shall be stupid, insensible, and, and great losers, for we shall have missed something. Lewis then concludes here in this book that God would be, by his very nature, the supremely beautiful and all-satisfying object. And so then it makes sense. and It's right then to glorify God because it is only by doing this that we will ever find rest, satisfaction, and joy in him because it's what we were made for. So he directs us to glorify God, praise God, not only because it's it's right, but it's because what we need. It fits us perfectly. It's what we were designed to do. This is also why the Psalms then say over and over again that it's fitting to praise God. It's, it's right to do this. It fits us perfectly. Perfectly, it completes us. And so all the beauty we have looked for and, and all of the love that we have looked for in the arms of people is only present in God himself. In our Christian faith then, we find that so much of our own practice, so much of the way that we deal with our own suffering hinges then on the concept of, of God's glory. But this brings us to an important question, doesn't it? And that is, what exactly is the glory of God? If our sufferings and God's glory are so closely intertwined that we really have to understand what it is that we're talking about when we say it's God's glory. As Keller points out, many theology books, if you've ever cracked one open, and, and you look at their attempt to define God's glory, they struggle. Like, you can find lots of different things. And this is most likely in his words because the glory of God is actually the combined magnitude of all of God's attributes and qualities together. The glory of God means what can be called his infinite beyondness. This means that our God is one that is beyond comprehension. And it is one of the aspects of our biblical God that society hates the most. For we are always saying things like, I can't believe in a God who would do this. I can't believe in a God who would judge people. And one of the things that we mean in saying such things is that we don't want a glorious God who is beyond our comprehension. So part of God's glory is that he is infinitely beyond us. But the glory of God also means his supreme importance. It speaks of his supreme importance. And the Hebrew word for glory means weight, literally God's weightiness. In our English word, we have a a word that functions in a similar way as the Hebrew word weight, and that is the word matter. When we talk about matter, we're talking about something solid. We're talking about something substantial. But matter can also mean something important, right? When something matters to us, it's important. And, and because it's important to me, it matters to me deeply. And in both of these meanings, we find that, it, that this is true, really, of God's glory. When the Bible says that God is glorious, it means that he should matter, and does matter more than anything or anyone else. And if anything matters to you more than God, you are not acknowledging his glory. You are giving his glory to something else. So when we speak of God's glory, we are not only speaking that he's infinitely beyond us, but that he matters more than anything else. Finally, in speaking of the glory of God, And connecting our suffering to this, we are speaking of his absolute splendor and beauty. Jonathan Edwards once said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. So it's not enough just to say, you know, I guess he's God. I got to listen to him. For in glorifying God, it means that you obey him not because you have to, but because you are attracted to him. And because you find delight in him. So to see God as glorious, again, it's to admit his infinite beyondness. It's to see him as that matters more than anything. And it's to work your heart to find him, most pleasurable and beautiful thing you know. Now when Tolkien and in the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, was published in the 1950s, a woman named Rona, I think that's how you say it, Rona, wrote Tolkien and asked him about the chapter in which the ring of power was destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom. And when the ring melted, she found it inexplicable that this overwhelming power, who is invincible, could be wiped out by, you know, the erasure of of such a small, tiny object. But Tolkien replied that at the heart of the plot was the Dark Lord's effort to magnify and maximize his power by placing so much of it in this ring. And so he wrote, The ring of Sauron is only one of various mythical treatments of the placing of one's life or power in some external object, which is thus exposed to capture or destruction with disastrous results to oneself. From this we can deduce something like this it is one thing to love somebody and get a lot of joy out of the relationship. But if that person breaks up with you and you suddenly want to kill yourself, you have given that person too much glory, too much weight in your life. You may have said in your heart, if that person loves me, then I know I am somebody. But if that person then takes the relationship away and you collapse in on yourself and you melt down, much like that rain. It's because you've ascribed more glory and more honor to him or her than to God. And if anything matters more to you than God, you are placing yourself and your heart into something external. Only if you make God matter most, which means only if you glorify him and acknowledge his supremacy, as we've talked about here, will you have a safe life. So we're starting here out with, with some basic truths I hope we can agree on. It's about God's glory. But much of our, our suffering, our, our pain comes when we get away from that and we place our ultimate hope in something else. And so beginning here again, I want us to refocus, recalibrate our minds on the true purpose, really, behind all of our life and all the sufferings and pains we experience. And in doing this, find aid as we face the suffering and pains of life. But this then, again, brings us to another question. So it's about God's glory. Great, Josh. Wonderful. Get it. Pains and sufferings. But how is God glorified in our sufferings and pains? Or more specifically, how does God practically use suffering to bring him glory and our good in the ways that we've talked about? And that's what we're going to look at next. how does God use this then in our life to bring him glory, our own future glory, and our good but any any questions before we dive into that? That was a lot I'm sure I think most of you are familiar with this so i'm not i'm I'm not like expecting any like I disagree completely with that, but know that as you talk with Christians, this don't assume that they Take this stance because this is not how many take a start out when facing suffering yeah as we have a big picture view of God and that's what we're constantly trying to do even in our service. So we're trying to enhance the largeness of God and in doing that we find our meaning our purpose our fulfillments our trials of life are minimized as it was for Paul uh, not that we trivialize it the pains we are going through but we can see it with better perspective right right Let's try to make God as big as we can and where we fail to do that, uh, we continue to encourage one another to do better. And so we'll continue to press forward here. Julie. Right. right. And that's exactly what suffering and pain, well, we'll get there. Yeah, you're, go, you're going there. But yeah, it, that's exactly what suffering and pain, it, it eliminates us from thinking we can do it on our own. It, makes it, it forces us to cry out to God. When we realize we're not doing exactly that, then the suffering and pains show us that quite often. But yeah, we we need the Lord's grace and mercy and try to emphasize that every week. Grace is the unique element in Christianity that is not shared among other cultures or religions in many respects and uh, something we need to run to over and over again. All right. We're going to continue to press on here. Oh, did you? Yeah, sorry, Ben. Right. In our sufferings. And that's where we're getting into next week facing suffering practically in the midst of it. And the psalmist encourages us to cry out honestly to God. I think all of life we should be honest with the Lord in that respect. When we face suffering, yeah, we don't shy away. We don't put on the stoic face. We are honest even as Jesus was in the garden. And I mean, explicitly honest. It's not like I'm facing this bravely without pain. It's like I'm dying here right now. I don't want this to happen. And the scriptures give a clear warrant to do that. And when we don't do that, that might be a mark of spiritual immaturity in our regard, guised as whatever we wanted, being strong or whatever when we're not. And to model Christ, our Savior, is the way to go. So, yeah, yeah, we're we're getting into the practical. I know you want that, Richard. I know. <laughs> I think we all do. We're, but the last three weeks, we're we're getting to those things. Good. All right. We will continue on here. Uh, moving on then to how God may use suffering. As we continue then, I I want to preface here that as we go through these different ways that God may use our suffering, I want to be clear, that's all I'm saying. I I don't know your situation. I don't know the mind of God. Um, So I am not saying that this is definitely, he's using one of these things in your life. We don't know. But these are ways that God may use suffering in our life. and, And one of the reasons and purposes behind it to bring himself glory. So just with that preface there. The first way that God may use suffering is to eliminate gods of our own making. In 1966, Elizabeth Elliot, who had been a missionary to the Indians, I think we're familiar with her, she, she wrote a novel entitled No Graven Image. In this book, she tells a story of a young, unmarried woman by the name of Margaret who had dedicated the entirety of her life to translating the Bible for remote tribes whose language had not yet been written down. In this Bible translation work, she began to translate the language of the Quechua, I think I'm saying that right, Quechua people of the mountains of Ecuador. Part of the success of her work in this language was the discovery of a man named Pedro. Pedro knew the unwritten dialect that Margaret needed to learn, in order to translate the Bible into that particular language. And so the man began to teach her this language, and her painstaking work of systematically recording it and documenting it moved the translation forward. One day, Margaret is feeling incredibly grateful for Pedro, and she wonders at how the Lord seems to be using him to enable her to translate the Bible into this native tribe's language. She prays, thanking God as she's been waiting for this opportunity for a great deal of time. All of her training in the U.S., all of the financial help from people, all of the years of building relationships, and finally, finally meeting a man who knew both Spanish and the dialects she needed seemed to be granted to her by God. And so she thinks God is bringing everything together. And so she imagines the possibility of bringing the Bible to a million people in remote regions of the mountains. As she finally arrives at Pedro's home, she discovers that he has a painful infection in his leg. And so part of her responsibility is to provide ordinary medical care. And therefore she has a syringe with her and some penicillin. Pedro asks for the injection and she gives it to him. But within seconds of doing so, Pedro begins to experience anaphylaxis, which is a severe whole-body allergic reaction to the penicillin. The entire family gathers around him in tears as he lies there convulsing. Can't you see he's dying? His wife, Rosa, cries to her. You killed him. Margaret is astonished at what is happening and she prays, Lord God, Father of us all, if you've ever heard me pray, hear me now. Save him. Lord, save him. But Pedro worsens, and he begins to wretch, bent over in tormented spasms. Margaret continues to pray in her mind. Oh, Lord, what will become of his wife, Rosa? What will become of your work here? You started this, Lord. It wasn't I that led me here. It was you. You answered prayers and gave me, Pedro. He is the only one. O oh Lord, remember that there is no one else. But Pedro dies. And indeed, it meant that her work was entirely over. All the years she she labored, just completely vanquished. And as for the translation of the Bible, it was never completed. The book ends with a profoundly confused young missionary. There is no last-minute reversal. There is no silver lining, as we so often see in the movies. She instead stands at Pedro's grave and she thinks, And God, what of him? I am with thee, he has said. But with me in this? He had allowed Pedro to die. Or, and I could not then, nor can I today deny the possibility, he perhaps caused me to destroy him. And does he now ask myself there at the graveside, does he ask me to worship him? The answer was yes. Elizabeth Elliot would later point to the very last page where she said was the key line. God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. She then went on to explain that the graven image was a God who always acted the way we thought he should. Or more to the point, he was a God that supported our plans or how we think the world in history should go. And really, this is just a God of our own creation, which in reality is a counterfeit God. Such a God is really just a projection of our own wisdom and really of our own self. And in this way of operating, God is our accomplice and someone whom we relate to so long as he does what we think he should do. And if he doesn't, well, then we'll fire him or or will unfriend him as we would any other person. But at the very end, Margaret realizes the demise of her plans had shattered entirely her false God. And now she says she was free for perhaps the first time to worship the one true God. When serving the God of my plans, she had been extraordinarily anxious. She had never been sure that God was trying to come through for her and get it right. She was always trying to figure out how to bring God to do what she planned. But she had not really been treating him as God, as the all-wise, all-good, all-powerful one. But through this immense suffering, she was liberated. Not to put her hope in her agenda and plans, but in God himself. If she could make this change, it would bring a rest and security she never had. Her suffering had pointed her then to a glorious God and it taught her to treat him as such. And when she did, it freed her from the desperate, doomed, and exhausting efforts to control all the circumstances of life and those that she loved. So the first point here, how God may use it, is that he may help us to eliminate false gods that we have made and worship. worshipped other than the one true God. And so it glorifies God when we simply learn to treat him as God, the one who is worthy of trust, and do not try to control him in the way that we think he should do. Second, we'll move quicker here. This is the longest one. It reveals God's power to others. Patient endurance in suffering can reveal God's power to those who watch us. As Paul puts it, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. In the early church, it was common for our church fathers to make the argument that Christians suffered so well that it validated our faith and power from God himself. In October 2006, a a gunman took hostages in a one-room schoolhouse of an Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And after shooting 10 victims, five of whom died, ages 7 to 13, he then killed himself. Within hours after the suicide murders, members of the Amish community visited the killer's parents and expressed sympathy for their loss and support for the hard days ahead. And when the gunman was buried a few days later, His young widow and her three children were amazed to discover that half of those who were attending the funeral were Amish, who showed nothing but support and concern for the murderer's family. And the way they handled their suffering here really evidenced powerfully across the nation of the grace and glory of God. We could go into more here, but they ended up making a film, and they just could not believe that they would forgive as they did. And so they ended up making a film that depicted the Amish as really struggling in their faith, as completely devastated and almost completely losing all trust in God alone. But when the movie was released, they came out, and they rebuked that film strongly, saying, none of us struggled like that at all, because we were firmly rooted in Christ forgiving his tormentors on the cross. And so, in a similar fashion, again, the sufferings we go through may be used by God to give testimony truly to what Christ has done for all of us. Third, it transforms attitudes towards ourselves. As we go through suffering and pain, it humbles us. It often removes unrealistic ideas of how much control we actually have over our lives. It removes the blinders that we often have over our face. And so it does not make us helpless and out of control as much as it shows us that we've always been vulnerable and dependent on God. Suffering wakes us up to our true vulnerabilities that we've always had, and then it calls us to live in accordance with, with them, much like you were getting at, Julie. It wakes us up so that we depend on God's grace, and it cultivates humility and dependence. Fourth, it can significantly change our relationship to good things in our life. And by this, we mean, oh, I think I skipped one, didn't I? No, 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 that's right. It significantly changes our relationship to good things in life. And by this, we mean that suffering and pain can work to reorder our loves. In suffering, sometimes we find that some things have become far too important to us. And so as we go through suffering, we are able then to recalibrate proper loves for what it should be. It provides a unique opportunity to invest more of our hope and meaning in God and family and others. Helps us to love appropriately what we should love. And it's often through suffering that God draws us to himself more and more. Fifth, it strengthens our relationship to God as nothing else can. And and really, suffering is indeed, in a sense, a test of our connection to God. Now, I want to admit that it can certainly tempt us to be so angry at God that we have no desire to pray or connect with him at all. Yet suffering also has the capacity to greatly deepen our divine relationship. And it begins with analysis. When times are good, how do you know that you love God or just love the things that he has given you or is doing for you? Truth is, I don't think any of us can know for sure. In times of health and prosperity, it's easy to think you have a loving relationship to God. You pray and you do your religious duties since it seems to be paying off. But it is only in suffering that we can hear God shouting a set of questions at us. Were things all right between us as long as I waited on you hand and foot? Did you get into this relationship for me to serve you or for you to serve me? Were you loving me before only because I was giving you Suffering then can often reveal, really, our own impurities, or perhaps even the falseness of our own faith in God. And so it is only in suffering that our love relationship with God can become more and more genuine. Last but not least then, it may help us to be a comfort to others. Studies have shown this over and over again, but the scripture tells us that adversity really can make us far more compassionate and useful than we otherwise would have been without suffering. Before, when we saw others in grief, I think sometimes we wonder, what's the big deal? Like, grow up, get your act together. You know, why can't you just man up, pull your bootstraps up, get going? But then suffering comes to us, and then we better understand. We understand them so much more than before. And so through suffering, we become more tender-hearted, And we are able then to help others who are likewise suffering. Suffering creates wisdom in people if they handle it well and it helps us to truly be of comfort to others who are hurting. We only have to go to Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. And this is where Paul, again, points us to the reality that in this, the sufferings we experience drive us to God who comforts us. And as He comforts us, we learn. We learn from that to comfort others even more. And this cycle keeps continuing on and on and on in the church. And in this way, the church then is to become a community of profound comfort and a place where you get enormous support for suffering, where people find themselves growing through their troubles into person, into the kind of person God wants them to be. And so it is in these ways that God may use suffering. We could add many, many, many others here as well. But again, it is my hope that in looking in some of these purposes and reasons behind suffering, it will help us to think through what is it that God's trying to teach me through this pain, through through this hardship that I'm undergoing, so that we don't squander or waste the opportunity, but grow in the likeness of Christ and in these ways so that he is glorified more and more. All right, we are at the end of our time. So I'll quickly pray for us. And if you have any questions, we can talk afterwards. Father, again, we are thankful for your goodness, for your mercy to us. Help us to grow in knowledge of your goodness and your mercy. And may our lives be used to glorify you Um, Truly, above all, no matter what we may be going through, so that we too can be of comfort to others. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.